Welcome to Talk Town. Colin Ricketts is one of the few people to walk around Australia. These are the moments that make up his life. Colin, can you talk about your earliest memories? Well, I think I can go way back to not quite a baby. I think it would have been a two or three year old toddler. And I do remember being in the pram because my aunties would poke their head in there and grab my cheeks and I've got memories of that. Where were you living at that stage? Yes, I was born and first raised in Melbourne and we were living in the suburban uh, area of East Oakley. And what sort of memories, childhood memories, do you have playing or was it a new estate in Melbourne or...? Quite established area, just off the old Princess Highway now and Sage Street, number four Sage Street I do remember and what I did, used to love playing with friends, uh, I had a friend named Philip down the road and because you could in those days we used to play in the street all the time we'd play cricket kick the footy there was even a vacant block block of land next door so we're able to dig holes look for insects play all sorts of games but a lot of lot of fun on the street and do you have any memories of doing any other sorts of things in the neighborhood at that age if you're out all day sort of playing well actually the memory was that's where I first went to kindergarten it was across the other side of Princess Highway, so Mum would have to walk me over. But I do have great memories of kindergarten, particularly being so young, was playing on their kinder gyms, and they had these massive wooden blocks, which you only need to build three of them, and they were taller than you were. And now I realise, of course, how small I was back then. A lot of people we've talked to doing these um, podcasts is about their family life and their parents' Um, being the age you are, your father may have been involved in the Second World War or Korean War. Was he affected? Was he in the war? And is he affected by any of those wars that were held? Dad wasn't actually. Uh, Rick, he he did enlist. Dad was born in 1926. He there are photos of him in uh, Air Force attire. What it was because all the army and all the other forces were already filled. But when Dad turned the required age of 18, he did enlist, but he didn't actually leave the country. His older brothers, particularly his oldest brother, Jack, did did serve the Second World War. He was actually one of the rats at Tobruk. And you, have you heard many stories from him about that? He... No, Jack has since passed, and it's, it's interesting you ask, because it's probably now that uh, I've got two older brothers, and particularly us boys, we're very interested in that sort of thing, uh, around Anzac Day and particularly with our grandparents and uncles that have served the country and both my grandparents served the country and there's war medals uh, on both sides uh, in the First World War and um, my on my mum's side, Grandpa George, too good. He wasn't the original landing uh, members of the force that landed Gallipoli, but he did actually get on to Gallipoli. There's information on papers that we've now got in the family. And Dad was uh, got as far as one of these stations, I think, in Melbourne, uh, close to home, but that that's about as far as Dad got, and then, of course, the Second World War stopped. Um, as, as a child, were you, can you remember being close to your mum and or your father at a young age, or were they sort of... Was one of them more standoffish than the other growing up as like a little child? 
always close. We a family of five now. Uh, I was the youngest and to age 10 when my younger sister Jan joined the family. So as mentioned, two older brothers and an older sister. So I was number four uh, off the uh, of the ranks and always a close family. There was always a pecking order, being the youngest um, and with two older brothers. I got picked on enough, but it was knowing that that was the the order of things and whenever we misbehaved we got told off we'd get a clip over the ears sent to our bedroom or um, punished in some way couldn't go out and play for a certain period of time and but as far as the closeness with mum and dad and the family we yeah my memories are certainly strong in there you know it's fun times we would go on holidays close times but also serious times when it was you knew if you didn't do the right thing or um, misbehaved or deliberately tried to uh, you know get home late because you want to be out in the street playing and doing what you wanted to do when you knew completely that what the instructions were what time you needed to be home you'd get in trouble and that was always respected now I've come to understand that the discipline was very important. Do you remember what primary school you went to and what was it like going to primary school? Where, what primary yes. school did you go to? Yeah, well, the first primary school, that's a great question because my first primary school was in Clearview in South Australia. We moved from Melbourne to Adelaide in the early 1960s with a job transfer with that. So we become adopted crow eaters. And my older brothers and sisters had already attended state school in Melbourne. But my only... Uh, any level of education as mentioned was kindergarten so when it was we first came to Adelaide we first lived out at Clearview so my first school I ever went to was Clearview Primary and I know this I'll never forget it my first day there mum took me down to school and uh, when she left I just held my eyes out I absolutely bawled I couldn't understand what it was why it was mum took me to this place with all these other kids and said goodbye. So I, I, I subsequently trotted after her in, in tears and she gave me a comforting hug and, and said, look, it's going to be all right. So I finally settled down. But then I would have been, I can't remember the time of year, Rick, whether or not I started beginning of year or midterm enrolment, but certainly for the first three to four weeks of school, Home was probably oh, 15, 20 minutes away. And for those first two or so weeks or more, um, every second or third day, I would just didn't like the school thing, was homesick. So I just would trot myself home. I wouldn't go inside. I knew mum was going off to work at a certain time. So I would just wait outside. And then mum would move, like come out the front door. Then I'd start crying. And then she'd just walk me back to school. And eventually it grew out of it. She was on to your plan. <laughs> she got, yeah, she was on to it. Um, did you um, excel at academically or in sports at primary school? Did you remember much about primary school in that way? Yes. Um, well, we were at Clearview for a couple of years and then we built down here, at, down south at Seacombe Heights, south of Adelaide. And so we, I started going to Darlington Primary then. And that would have been from grade, I'm trying to remember now, it was either around grade two or three, and always participated in sport. 
We love our Australian rules football as a family. Uh, followed Glenelg Football Club. That's the first team we followed here in South Australia. We followed Geelong when we were in Melbourne and had a passion for that. We'd go to those games. So for me, academically, regular student, I wouldn't say I was certainly exceptional. Um, I much preferred just to be out, you know, when the siren went, you know, it's recess time and lunchtime. I was just happy to run out there with, with my friends and kick the footy and uh, in the wintertime or summertime as well and then play cricket, hit the ball, get a game going or something. So sporting-wise, I was generally a good a good player. I did receive some Best of Fairest awards along my way uh, and most consistent was an award I would get, particularly in primary school. Never in the top, top oh, bunch of 10, but I was certainly generally first pick in the main footy team and I'd when I started playing footy in late primary school and right through high school. Um, so leading primary school, what high school did you attend? Yeah, so from Darlington Primary, it was to Seacombe High, which is now Seaview High, and did all my high school there. And um, I'd have to say from first year to third year, I, I enjoyed academically. Again, wasn't a... a, a um, top of the tree when it comes to marks and things. I was always generally average to good. But I have to say in year 11, which is was then called fourth year high school, I got a little bit lazy um, getting in my mid-teens then, getting a bit distracted with things I'd prefer to be doing away from school, mainly playing sport. And um, I didn't do all that flash in that year and then I'd come back and repeated the year because I failed three subjects. Um, did you start a part-time job or anything in high school or did you wait until you went to college before you started working? Yes, I did have part-time work over the Christmas holidays from around age 15, 16 in at John Martin's credit department up on the sixth floor of the old John Martin's. Was that pretty crazy? It was, <laughs> it was. <laughs> uh, and I was in the area of, um, and anyone who can remember, in the John Martin's days and particularly department stores, any customers that had accounts, they had account approval. In those days, you could literally go to a department, particularly if it was furniture and uh, clothing, any department, and actually charge up your purchases. Now, those purchases come through on a piece of paper. They're written up, no credit cards, no electronic system in those days. So those pieces of paper, and hence why Christmas being busy, and part-time jobs were available. I was in the sorting department, it was called, and I was just making sure the customers' uh, charge accounts, pieces of paper, were listed uh, alphabetically, not fine sorting. And here's the thing, Rick. Mm -hmm. I was only alphabetical sorting. So R for Ricketts, I would put all the R's together, Roberts, Ricketts, Reed, any R, come together, I then didn't do the fine sorting. They went on to the next department that then did the fine sorting and then they got mailed out to the customer. Um, with high school, did you have any other... Um, did you do sport right through high school as well? And did you sort of focus on more than one sport in those levels of school? I did. Uh, in first year high, and Sikkim had a very strong football team and it was only A and B grade, so only being first year high school, what, 13, 14-year-old, 
I uh, wasn't good enough. I was only a little tacker. Wasn't able to get into the main football team. So that particular year, my good mate, a friend of mine, Phil, was into the rugby, the rugby union. He was playing at a southern suburb. So I played that first year, high school, playing rugby away from the school. But then in the second second and third year onwards, yes, I certainly participated uh, regularly with the main football team for the school, B grade then through to A grade in the winter time. Summertime, not so much school participation. I wasn't much of a cricketer, and that was certainly one of the major sports through school. Athletics, I didn't so much get involved with at school other than sports day. It was only later in life I got involved there. And so we, we I say, our family, because older brothers, again, as mentioned, we subscribed to life-saving, surf life-saving. So I started up in the Little Nippers as a teenager and then worked my way through into senior ranks in the summertime. What surf club did you go to? We started with Seacliff Surf Life-Saving Club, the Little Nipper there. And my older brother, Graham, was one of the foundation members of the Hallock Cove Life-Saving Club when it first started. So Neil and I, my other brother, we followed Graham down there. So I, I had done my uh, little nippers with Seacliff and it was would have been at age 14, 15 that I then went down to Hallett Cove as a junior lifesaver and then went through to seniors. So being a typical surf club, I suppose that became a lot of your social life Completely. as well. Indeed it did. Yeah, there was uh, some country trips. There was a carnivals over in Wyala. I remember being on the team bus for that trip. That was great fun. We did some national titles. One I do remember it particularly was in Ocean Grove in Victoria and um, and certainly throughout the throughout the state, mainly the just outer regions of Adelaide, Victor Harbour down south and uh, the suburban beaches for the carnivals. What main event did you focus on as a clubby? Yeah, I love the beach sprint and also relays and the flags. The beach flags were fun. My claim to fame was interesting in the... When I was still with Seacliff in the Little Nippers, I was one arm reach out of getting a medal in the state titles in the beach flags. In the nip, as mentioned in the Nippers, I was down to the last four and obviously only three pins are up. So when I went for it, I just missed out. Had the successful guy who went on, he clambered over the top of me, so he got it before me. And then the beach sprints was never... I'd make finals but could never, ever get any medals then we had success at one of the state titles alongside my brother Neil and two other of the club members at Hallett Cove. We actually got ourselves a bronze medal, got a third place in the state titles in one of the beach sprint relays. Um, let's sort of move on now. Oh, to work. Yeah, once you, when, you, sorry, when you finished school, did you go to university or did you do an apprenticeship? No, I didn't. You did, and you asked previously with school. That's right. Well, what I did, I, my intention was, because I love my sport, and there was phys ed teachers at school. I used to think that what they had, what their job was fantastic, coordinating and organising all the students to do all the sporting activities, and that was one of my major passions. So I always wanted to be a school teacher, or certainly a phys ed teacher, but because I wasn't all that big on study, uh, I certainly didn't ex excel all that high with my marks, as mentioned before, I found... When I found out to go to teachers' college, one, you needed good marks, 
Well, as mentioned, I repeated year 11. My intention was to still keep going. But when I got to matric year 5, year fifth year high school, year 12, I found the study more of a distraction because I just wanted to be doing things away from school, uh, playing my sports still. So I, I, I left school after first term of my second of my year coming back into matric and found myself a job. And as you could, particularly in those days, I, my first job was a, a store person down at John Martin's Marion. And how long did you stay there for? I was in John Martin's on their payroll for would have been at least two or three years and it was through my employment there I there was an opportunity to come in store as a sales assistant in the blind department. They had a vacancy and I applied, got that role, would have uh, come with a bit of a pay rise. From what I can remember, Rick, I'm pretty sure my salary would have been and we're talking around 1976, probably $80 a week. And in the blind department, I was there at two years. And it was through my experience there, I applied for a position when it became vacant to be a sales cadet, which was an, an order taker and coordinator for a drapery and hardware business called Cylon International. And that really... That, that role then, when I was successful with that job, getting that job, that is when I actually felt like I had a career path. Whereas when I first started getting a job at John Martin's Marion, it was getting a job because mum and dad said, well, if you're not going to go to school, you've got to get yourself a job. So that I did. And that set me off in the path in that industry. And from being a sales cadet, I was... When an opportunity came up after a couple of years, I was promoted to a sales representative and uh, got into the life of sales, which I really love. Um, now moving forward, I think from that sort of time, your um, involvement with the um, uh, walking, long distance walking, yes. and walking for charity, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how it starts. You might want to just run through the beginning of that phase. Is it something you decided you'd do the walk around Australia or you got involved with a charity and... How did that happen? What what mechanism made you think, I know what I'll do, I'll walk around Australia for a couple of hundred days? Yeah, well, it was a process, Rick, to start with. Certainly, um, I, I was inspired by the Westfield Ultra Runners when the Westfield had their Sydney to Melbourne and Melbourne to Adelaide Ultra Runs on. And certainly, Cliff Young, I found amazing, given his age at the time, that and the way by way he took the line honours the year that Cliff won it. And for me then, I was in my mid-30s, and I just found that very intriguing. Whilst I enjoyed my sport, I was never the, the top athlete. I was never the fastest. I certainly wasn't the slowest. But I just found that intriguing that these guys could go for so long over so many long distances. Now, we're going back to 1990. I did register with some minimal training i probably only got up to my longest run was 30 or so kilometers i was really just testing the water but in 1990 i entered a adelaide to victor harbour run which is 100 kilometers and i made 70 kilometers or it may well have been 80 kilometers of that event and happy to pull out because at that stage wasn't so much the blisters but my feet 
just from the pounding, uh, were so sore, um, and I'm certainly not a quitter, but it was really just a test. So that started me off to get into that, and I might as put all my notes away from that because I was still participating in athletics and I enjoyed that so much and for ultra events it takes a lot of time of training but I did get a lot of experience from that and when I spoke to some colleagues and I was even able to speak to some other ultra marathoners who participated in that event and one was David Stander even David was a line honours winner of also the Westfield and I come to learn really quickly my technique was way off, certainly not to do with ultra running. I was still running like I was running a sprint or a 1600 meter or even a 10k event. I had way too much of a high knee lift. So it is generally what Cliff does, it's generally a shuffle. But I put that on on hold basically because I still was enjoying in my mid to late 30s, enjoying my athletics over summer didn't, and working, of course, full time. Didn't have the time to really concentrate on it. So it wasn't until Now we're moving forward to the year 2000 and then the McGuinness McDermott Foundation, now formed by Chris McDermott and Tony McGuinness, now known as Little Heroes Foundation. Well, the foundation then were advertising and raising money for an MRI machine for the Women's and Children's Hospital. This is the end of the year 2000. Now, other little bit of history there, Rick, is what pricked my ears up with that information, one, I was surprised that at that time the women's and children's didn't actually have their own MRI machine for scanning. But our young son Luke, this is my wife Di and I, our son Luke when he was a baby back in 1980, so we're going back again. But Luke was diagnosed with a brain tumour, which was quite traumatic and life-changing for us all. But the good news was uh, a, after surgery, when it was all detected, Luke, as mentioned, was only a little baby, it went benign. So I can happily say now Luke is a happy, bouncing, more than bouncing, 36, soon to be 37-year-old adult, uh, married with children. So we're very blessed to have experienced that when it could have been all so very different when he was so young uh, with the brain tumour. So on my heart, I always had... Uh, a passion uh, and an alliance with kids with cancer and because of my football involvement and um, I did do some SNFL football umpiring so I had the opportunity just to know them as colleagues but meet and know Tony and Chris through football so I really admired the time that the two boys set up the foundation and then it took it to an I took it to another level at that stage when they, as a foundation, were raising money for the MRI because then I realised, well, look, I can do something with that and I started getting all my notes out way from 1990 when I did my ultra run. And um, what caused you to start organising the walk? Yes, well, my first fundraiser then was in 2002. I organised a run from Melbourne to Adelaide and that was to raise money for the MRI, for the Little Heroes Foundation. After that experience, that's when it fell on me that I enjoyed it so much. Uh, I felt like, because I'm goal-driven, I like to set the bar pretty high. I thought, well, if I could do that, then I can take it to the next level. And that's when I started looking at Australia. 
So with the Melbourne to Adelaide, Adelaide to Melbourne run, how many kilometres did you do a day or did you have a set and how many days did that take you to do? Yeah, I had a set itinerary and it was from Melbourne to Adelaide. We did start in Melbourne and it was over two weeks. So on average, it was around 30 to 40 kilometres a day, depending on where the towns were. So it was pretty well planned. I had one of my brothers, Graham, help as the support crew. My son, Luke, was on board as well. And some other friends helped along the way as backup. And the only thing I did experience when we got to Horsham, I had some severe soreness in one of my knees. So we actually relayed for a few more days so the support crew come on board and did a few of the kilometres because it was a fixed itinerary and certainly more so about fundraising for the MRI machine for the foundation for the women's and children's. We were able to keep the walk, the run then, sorry, the run going and we successfully got into Adelaide in Rundle Mall as, as pre-arranged, as organised after 750 kilometres but I finished, still finished the last 100 kilometres of the run with a bung knee. And did that have to take a long time to repair after? It wasn't too bad. Again, it was all the extra work. I prepared as best I could for it. I was really still learning, mm. cutting my teeth on the ultra ultra marathon sort of side of thing. It was more between my ears. I was just driven uh, with the passion to to see it out. Uh, I would, uh, from memory now, I had a really good physio to to go to and I would have been back running normally within two weeks. It was only just excessive soreness from the excessive running that the body was enduring that I hadn't done before. So you recover from that and then start organising the big massive walk. That's a walk. You didn't run, did you walk? No. Well, again, my first thought was it was during 2003 is when I decided I will do Australia and I started to organise how that was going to come together. It was thought, my thought initial was to actually run it. That's all I figured it would, would be. But then when I seriously got into the planning and organising early 2004, I come to understand that, well, if I'm to actually run it, I need to be doing some serious training and I was still working full-time, that if I'm going to walk around or run or walk around Australia, I need to be, one, uh, capable of doing it. I didn't want to start something because, as mentioned, I had a sore knee with the Melbourne to Adelaide run whilst it's 750 kilometres and a little bit shorter than a lap around the country. But, again, it just fell on me, well, Colin, I think it's going to be more achievable and more sensible Let's just set it up as a walk, which I did, and then went about planning and organising what was going to be a charity walk around Australia, raising money for kids with cancer. So just take us through the, what did you do, the stages? Was it a massive planning? Was it, or was it solo as well? Or yes. Or was it unassisted solo? Or was it a yeah. support vehicle? And yeah, well, the journey there... Um, it started out, I did what I couldn't call a business plan, but you could call it more sets of documents, really, which just promoted what I was doing. I started getting on the computer, typing in what it is I needed, just so I had some spreadsheets, I had some documents. When people asked, I could cut, paste, email them stuff. I, I got into uh, searching for sponsorship, at the end of 03, once it was, I decided that's what I was going to do. 
My full-time employment at the, at the time was up in Harndorf, a wonderful place called Muggleton's General Store, which is no longer, but I was part of the senior management team there and I'd been working there five years but because the owners, Ron and Sandra, were terrific people. I'd already done, and I did that on annual leave, I'd already done that run in 02 whilst I was still working at Muggleton's during my annual leave. But I made the conscious decision, if we're going to do this walk, I can't I can't sort of encroach on any business time because I wouldn't have annual leave enough to do it. And the good good heart of Rowan and Sandra, we were able to discuss it and I was able to amicably resign from my position. They gave me a wonderful set-off, send-off. They even gave me advanced salary, so I had some extra funds to get myself going. And that was in February 2004. So then I was literally unemployed in one level, but then also totally focused in getting myself organised. So getting sponsors together for the war, initial plan was, yes, to have support vehicle with support crew. Crew. I had a gentleman uh, who was um, available to come and be part of that support crew. I set some budgets in terms of what it was going to cost from what we could work out. Research as much as I could, network with so many people that I could network with that had done ultra events. Work very closely with the Little Heroes Foundation as well. Tony and Chris were brilliant because I adopted them as I did with the run in O2 as my chosen charity. So they are very helpful with their information as well as put me in contact with some sponsors. Midway through that year, it became obvious that one, I wasn't going to get the sponsorship needed, and we're talking more like $100,000, $150,000 worth of funds needed to fund a walk around Australia. We're talking petrol uh, for a vehicle, whatever level of support vehicle it was going to be, whether it was car and caravan or motorhome, as well as feed ourselves and also support crew. And as good as everyone's help had been, I acquired MBF, now Booper, as my major sponsor. They were able to fund me and my living expenses while I was preparing for the walk, which made life so much easier. And also some great support from principals, sponsors, more so but on the fundraising side of it. So I had pledges of $15,000 from some organisations. So that was when I kind of come through, obviously, when I finished. I was a member of the Handorf Lions Club and Lions adopted it as a club project and so through the Handorf Club we were able to network through clubs around the country and also a trust account was set up here in Adelaide and before I started there was another $10,000 or thereabouts in the kitty but we were never going to get the funds or it was quite clear and obvious I wasn't going to get the funds needed for a support vehicle so I had a decision to make and it was brought to me a book called Going the Distance, written by Canadian-born, now living in Australia, Deanna Sorensen. And she'd walked solo from Perth to Sydney, pushing a pram. And that interests me greatly. So I went online, ordered her book, had it arrive two days later. I put in my little note um, when I ordered the book to Deanna to say what I was doing. And I was very interested to receive the book. And I even got a phone call uh, the next day to wish me all the best from Deanna and said, hopefully my book arrives soon. 
and it's of good interest to you and it sure did I had it written about sorry I had it read uh, in about five minutes I reckon and that was it that was when it was sealed up in my mind and now we're talking around about September 04 I can do this solo so the, all of it all changed all focus was on it continuing as a walk around Australia but as a solo gig just me pushing a pram with all my worldly possessions inside now you named the pram I did yes <laughs> well the trolley yes yeah that's right he, he's got a name he's still with me he's called Wilson and good old dear Wilson from the movie Castaway uh, the famous movie starring Tom Hanks it was a movie that when it first released that Luke and I really loved and um, we nicknamed our cars at the time. I had a very old Toyota, which we called the Rocket, because it wasn't. And Luke's car at the time was a Datsun 180B. And um, we called it Wilson after the movie. Well, Luke nicknamed it Wilson. And it was a name that stuck. We just loved it. So clearly I needed to have a name for my chariot. And Wilson was the obvious choice. And I've also done an interview with... Um Mark Gibbons, and he, you also loaned it to him for his Across Australia challenge as well. That's so right. Don't even been around Australia and then crossed it again. I know. <laughs> yes, I'm a bit dirty <laughs> on it because I'm um, more than happy for Mark to use use Wilson. But now, of course, Wilson's got an extra 6,000 kilometres up on me. <laughs> and um, did you build it all in your backyard or did you, uh, how did you, would you strip down something from the well, second-hand store? Yeah, well, actually, I bought him brand new. There's a story there. And again, with Deanna's walk, Deanna Sorensen, when she trekked across Australia, she used by brand a baby jogger pram. And because that's what she had used and it looked pretty good from the photos and all the descriptions that Deanna gave of it, I didn't know brand models or made any difference, but it looked like a really big, solid three-wheel pram. It's got one wheel at the front, two at the back, but it's really literally what it says, a baby jogger, and it's made too uh, for mums and dads to jog behind the baby to keep fit. So I was able to make contact with the the agent, the Australian agent in Sydney. Her name is Rachel of Baby Jogger. When I was serious about doing it solo, and I certainly needed a chariot. So the short story, I had to make a trip to Sydney in October of 04. Uh, for a couple of reasons, and one was to link up again with MBF and get their support and assurance of them sponsoring me now that I was doing it solo. Whilst we talked over the phone, I preferred to be face-to-face, as well as literally go out to the warehouse of Baby Jogger and see Wilson in a box and absolutely fall in love with him straight away and said, right, you're mine, you're coming around the country for a year and um, organised it with Rachel to ship him over to my home. We um, got him organised there. I did have to do some modifications. The pram seat that normally the children would sit in, that I took out, it just clipped out, and I had some aluminium struts made, very lightweight, more or less like poles, and a canvas bag. So it formed a really just big bag, which I could zip up from through the top, which carried which was quite wasn't so much waterproof but very solid and strong so all the possessions went in there that I took on the walk and I also had a guard welded to the front of the foot plate that the children would put their feet so I could store water in between the bag and 
the footplate on top of the footplate, but that section there is about uh, foot, a foot wide, 30 or 50 centimetres high and, and wide. So it gave me some good storage space. And um, so just go through the starting, where you started the, the walk from, and uh, just sort of run through how far how, how far did you travel each day? Yes. And what were you aiming to get through in the week and things like that? That's right. Well, I started yeah. out, again, in my planning. I set myself a 15-month itinerary, which, to be honest, Rick, I knew I was going to do it quicker than that. And that that was an average of 30 kilometres a day. The approximate distance I wasn't going to know until I finished, but was well over 15,000 kilometres following National Highway 1. And... I, having known those distances, literally off a map and other people's information that I was able to get, I um, I had in my mind that I could possibly do it in and around 12 months. So had a website which is no longer up, but at the time, no Facebook then, but had a website to support the walk and where people could log on and have a look at my progress. And... I deliberately put up a 15-month itinerary because, as you can find, when things change, people change, and I had so much wonderful support, but I also generated a lot of interest and, respectfully, a lot of ownership. People have opinion, naturally, and you just got to wear that. So, of course, when it went from a support crew to solo, the, the jury was out from a few respected people that were part of the whole process of supporting me just principally so that's why I was conservative with the itinerary because I didn't need to upset anyone I certainly didn't need to defend anything but when the first day started I got myself to the starting line I was preparing I was up to walking literally 200 kilometers a week I was on the feet six hours a day because I fortunately had a good part of 2004 preparing I was well supported with my sponsorship I was very, very serious. Uh, regular training session would have been two-hour walk. I was still based at Harndorf, so I'd literally do loops of Harndorf up and around the back, work my way through to Mount Barker. Two-hour gym session of a lot of repetitious weights, just building up the body strength as well as the mind, and then another two-hour loop walk home. And that was pretty well it in between organising sponsorship. So by the time I got to the start, which was January 4, 2005. We, I had put on four kilos, so I weighed 76, and just cherry ripe, ready to go, literally bouncing out of my skin. And the plan was an already organised. The launch was at the Women's and Children's Hospital at North Adelaide. So literally on the Tuesday morning of the 4th of January, 05. The big launch and um, all invited guests and family and friends and there was me the walking man as I become adopted I'm starting to get called um, and my trusty companion Wilson were ready to go so which way did you head off first yes we it was uh, headed south so from the women's and children's it was literally straight south down King William Street under police escort I might add with all supporters able to walk behind us and all that dispersed when we got to Victoria Square and then left literally to my own devices but anyone who wanted to continue and I had my son Luke and some friends still stay with me until the toll gate 
and pretty much from that point I was solo on my own but of course around the walk which we can talk about at a different time a bit later but I had people join me but my first day was from Adelaide to Handorf and um, and stayed with my dear friend Karch up in her home and I'd done some pre- preparation and planning um, Karch was very much on the planning team so I literally stayed in the home I'd been doing a lot of planning with on the first night of my day one of the walk. And then from uh, what sort of adventures did you have? Like was there, um, is, it, is it more adventures with people and places and animals or was it more just your body falling apart around you as you got into the you know, yeah. distance loads? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. Let's talk, <clears throat> let's talk the body first. It was until... Um, I got to Mount Barker and a good friend of us that we share, Rob Goringe, was teaching at the time. So Rob saw the condition I was in when I actually arrived Mount Mount Barker. If I said Mount Barker, I meant Mount Gambier. When I arrived... Uh, so the first day you got to Mount Gambier. Uh, sorry, start again. Yeah. My first night was in Handorf. Yeah, and then I found my way... From Handorf, I walked through to Murray Bridge. It was about 60 kilometres. Then it was a short day on day three to Talonben, 25 kilometres. And then I generally worked on either location, township. So from Talonben, it was all the way to Meningi, it was over 60 kilometres. And I was hosted by lines in a lot of those towns. And with the remote areas, I would spread it out. I'd do either 40, 50 kilometres a hit. And then I'd, if I got to a town, I would stop there. I did have coordinated rest days. So when I got to Kingston South East, that was my first rest day. And generally it was washing and getting organised. But as I settled into the walk, and we're talking January, so we're talking Australian summer, it was very hot. I knew that. Um, but fortunately, down south it was dry heat. But I just quietly just plodded away. I was averaging five kilometres an hour pace. It's just a regular walk. No, nothing outstanding. And the body was setting de- settling down really well. The one thing I hadn't taken into account, I hadn't actually trained with Wilson. I literally, getting him ready and getting prepared and working out what I should should not and shouldn't, should take. Obviously, spare clothes and shoes and a tent and those things, essentials needed uh, to get me between town and town. But when it was the strip between Millicent and Mount Gambier and we're talking... Just within the first week, this would have been literally about day seven or eight, I found that uh, on the day I did Millicent to Mount Gamby, and it was literally from a host's home, so I had good rest, good feed, good shower, uh, to a hotel I booked myself to go to to Mount Gambier. It was on a Sunday, it was very busy traffic, so I literally had to, where I could, I'd try to get the bitumen because it's smoother walking clearly but I literally just about pushed Wilson the whole 50 kilometres from Millicent to Mount Gambier on the side of the road through the weeds and the rubble by half time the body was really arcing up it had had enough the shoulder was absolutely aching like mad from pushing him the body was still settling into pushing Wilson anyway and my right knee was becoming swollen through the heat and the constant walking, which, again, you can only train so much. And a shin splint started to kick in on the left leg. 
So it was not a great feeling and not a pretty sight. I was hobbling around like I was ready just to keel over. So halfway mark pretty well between Millicent and Mount Gambia. I sat down for some lunch, thinking my way through trying to process, well, what am I going to do? Because the body was severely aching and hurting and I was thinking, well, how do I get through all of this? And then I how possibly I could be walking around the country, let alone get myself to Mount Gambia. So finally got up and anyone who knows if you've done anything, particularly running on a major scale, or even a short scale, even a mile race, and after you stop, the body slows down and it gets cold. You don't want to get up again. And then I just realised when I got up after sitting down for half an hour that the body was no better. In fact, it was worse because it, it cooled down. So I got myself behind Wilson and just pushed him forward. The pain just lurched in, in all the areas of my body that I didn't know experienced. And I just focused on the reflective pole ahead of me with the little red reflectors that you see when you've got your headlights on at, uh, of a nighttime driving and the first one I looked at was only literally 15 metres away and I just told myself Colin just walk to that so I did amongst the pain and I told myself if you can do that you can do the next one and I did that all the way to Mount Gambia it took me a good seven hours to walk 20 odd kilometres and fortunately, I had a great friend in Rob there to greet me. We rang as I was approaching. I wasn't one that forecast how I was going. People knew if I was <laughs> enduring any pain, but that was the only time, fortunately, I can say, but that was the only time I had anything like that through doing this, doing the walk. And um, Rob could see the condition I was in, so he just gave me great support. He didn't patronise me, didn't ask me any questions about why, why for, what for. I just said, oh, yeah, no, the body's not feeling too good at the moment. I was all into the ice bars. So being, when I could, coming down the Coorong, I was getting into ice bars if I could organise them, and that settled things down. I had a planned rest day in Mount Gambia, and there's some media work to do and some fundraising. Fortunately, having Rob on board, he, took, he drove me around to all of those. Got a massage and come the next day back on the road certainly the body had improved oversight in fact I couldn't believe how much better it felt the next day to the point where it might have been like I imagined what I had just been through the second half of the walk coming into Mount Gambia also and Rob uh, being a good friend and phys ed teacher and knowing his body, we love our athletes, we've, uh, athletics, we've run together. And knowing a good thing about the body, he started out pushing Wilson as well. So I was able just to relax, not have to concern myself pushing him. When we'd already got out of Mount Gambit on the open road, Rob got me behind Wilson just to have a look, to, sh to show him how I'm actually pushing him. He picked up straight away, I was hunched over. I was actually leaning over Wilson Um to somehow, I didn't realise I was doing it, but to compensate for pushing. Because he weighed 100 kilo. He, he was 70 kilo overweight to what a baby, what the baby jogger was actually registered to take. He was, he was just um, so heavy. So Rob just stopped me and said, well, there you go, that's what you're doing. You're actually arching your back. You're hunched forward. 
to stand up straight. And we're on the bitumen, there was no traffic on the side of the road. And literally just said, just put your arms out, relaxed, on the handles, and just push it forward. But don't change the posture of your back. Just keep that firm. And I couldn't believe it, what a difference it made. And that's what I did. So um, literally from that day onwards, I also I'm sure it was a combination, the body settling into getting used to pushing the pram had no no other problem. That was the major concern, and that was early days, funnily enough, with the body. Always got blisters, started getting a few twitches in the hips by the time I got around to Western Australia, given that I went, and this is 10 months, 10, 11 months into the war, given I went anti-clockwise. So that was what the experience was with the body. Then the people thing really blew me away, because one thing, as much as I prepared physically and mentally, the one thing I hadn't, and you don't know this until you experience it, but the spontaneous support by strangers, um, there's certainly not enough time for us to go with every experience, but certainly, uh, and it happened early, for example, talked about Millicent. Before I got to Millicent, people were stopping, giving me support. There had been, fortunately, some good publicity um, on the local media outlets, they, the Television reports, the news reports showed me leaving Adelaide, so there'd been some good publicity, so people recognised me on the road. Had a wonderful couple come out to me, and it was going to be a camping night, the night before I got into Millicent. They brought out a hot chicken and a thermos of coffee for my dinner, which I hadn't planned. It was going to be probably a can of uh, baked beans or, or tuna or something. I absolutely hoed into it and couldn't believe how generous people could be and that type that line of support followed me the whole way around the country just spontaneous support from all people from all walks of life including including the police policeman on the east coast bought me lunch when he saw me walk in the shop he followed me in it was just amazing people would just surprise you what they can do that's right i I talk more about it being an out-of-body experience, Rick. That was, there was the walking man, and I know what I was doing and what my focus was. But when it was, I was granted so much generosity with hospitality, spontaneous hospitality, people never, complete strangers. When they knew my itinerary and which way I was heading, they would hook me up with friends in towns ahead. And so the, the link and the, the level of support just grew constantly. I stayed with some wonderful people in Geelong, Mark Gibbons, when he did his walk with Wilson, also stayed with the same lovely couple, George and Carol in Geelong, and they are members of Lions. George and Carol hooked me up with so many people up the East Coast. I stayed with friends of theirs in Port Macquarie uh, and other Lions clubs. We'd already recruited some Lions clubs, but it just added to the whole thing. And I was just overwhelmed. I honestly hadn't factored in it i literally just considered most of the time i would be to my own devices but when it come to the towns most towns very rare was it i wasn't hosted or looked after and it it just become uh, an amazing experience on that one um family again um is this is and this is more than one occasion but one his testimony 
and a great example of this support, uh, the Biggs family, Libby and Bill, and their children, Nathan and, and Maddie, Madison, they're from Dongra in Western Australia, which is near Geraldton. They're on a family trip to Broome for a, a friend's wedding. So they saw me on the road with Wilson. There'd been some publicity. So when they saw me, I'm heading south this time on the west coast on the Great Highway over in WA. And I was just south of Port Hedland. And they stopped, which wasn't unusual. Families and people stopping. They jumped out. They were so friendly. Because they'd seen me on the road, they said to the kids, ah, oh, there's the walking man. Let's stop and say hello. So they said hi, gave me a donation. This is in September of 05. They've said, then they've said to me, oh, you'll be going through Dongra. You have to stay with us. I said, yeah, actually I am. It's on my itinerary. And, well, it's Bill's 40th on the 31st. You'll have to stay with us. Can you make it then? And I've gone, um, yeah, I think so. And I've literally looked at my itinerary, which has changed so many times. I've got pen marks and white out and lines and things going on and by then and this is a funny thing i'd always obviously be talking to wilson and people would ask me did he ever answer back and i said oh yeah of course he did when you spend 12 months with him you do hear what he says come back but uh, i said to wilson well what do you reckon mate you're up for a party he goes oh yeah you bet so we said leave it with us we'll do our best and we actually got there i actually arrived on the afternoon late afternoon, just on sunset of Bill's 40th, while guests were arriving. And to extend that story a little bit more, I was uh, warmly greeted. I met uh, the parents were there, of course, caught up with the family again. And uh, Nathan was so kind, I think he was instructed by his parents, but he donated his bedroom, that's where I got to stay. Wilson was parked downstairs. It was a home up on stilts, just on the outskirts of the township of Dongra nice uh, property so wilson was set up there um nice and quiet and all the guests were arriving when it comes to speech time and i did i just kept quiet just sipping away on my orange juice when it comes to the speech time bill made a point of oh and i want you to all say good day to my good mate cole he's walking around australia raising money for kids with cancer and just to show him and give him a bit of support. Let's pass the hat around and let's just make some donations and help him on his way. And I was just amazed because I didn't ask for that. I just was happy to be quiet for the night. It was all about Bill's 40th. After the hat was passed around, Libby brought it up to me. And uh, and it was getting late in the night and I was ready to retire as well. So I politely de- uh, retired, said goodbye to everyone. Went up to the bedroom, counted up the money, $800. Now, what blew me away with all of that, number one, other than the immediate family, no one knew, you know, say it this way, Rick, is the best way I can describe it. No one knew that the walking man was going to be there. So they've come for Bill's 40th and for Bill's 40th only, laden with gifts, slabs of beer, typical country shinding, get-together, great time, had the band on the back of the semi, everything was cranked up. So as soon as Bill announced that, Oh well, we've got we've got a guest amongst amongst us as well doing a fundraiser. They found it spontaneous the kindness in their hearts to just to pull out amongst the guests. There would have been a hundred guests, but I couldn't believe it. I I, I I put no expectation on any money coming in. How much? Anything? Five cents was a bonus. 
and again I just couldn't believe it I um, I was so grateful when I left that day I was still a buzz all the way to Perth from what generosity could be um, bestowed upon me in the walk going from such a high was mm. there any lows where you were just totally by yourself somewhere pitched a little tent no food no water yeah. <laughs> flat tire Wilson's yeah. got a puncher was there days mm. that were just you, you said in the beginning there was but once you got going, was there any times where you just totally alone? Always, always totally alone. My preparation, part of my preparation was to get my head right because I wasn't going to take the first step if I knew I wasn't capable to be mentally sound. Now, I'm happy to, to openly share rather than admit, but I called it peeling onion sessions. And I had numerous sessions. I literally weeped and cried bald, on the wall, by myself, um, the first major one, and this is the thing I gave myself permission to do, because I sort of figured, well, Colin, you're going on a bit of a journey here, you've got a goal, you want to walk around Australia, but the purpose behind it is to raise money, to, to firstly celebrate the survival of Luke when he was a little boy with his brain tumour, and also be grateful for the great health I've got and the health of my family. So the first peeling onion session really hit me with a wave was when I had um, a father come out in uh, my time as I was going through Newcastle in New South Wales. The morning I was leaving Newcastle, in fact, I'd been again hosted by lines, well looked after. I'm on the road doing my walking thing on the footpath, haven't got out of town. Gentleman come, Craig Butters, come and said hello. Introduced himself. Clearly it done research and he looked on the website, knew about the walk and knew some history. He gave me a, a generous donation, shook my hand. He also said, when you see Luke next, celebrate him on for surviving. And it spun me out. <laughs> and even now it makes me um, choke because that was the first encounter other than being in hospital ourselves with Luke of an actual parent, uh, and Craig's story was they'd lost their son Nicholas the year before. And when Craig, his spirit, I could see Nicholas's spirit in his eyes, and Craig was an amazing man. So I did. And and um, when he left, I held strong. I couldn't believe it. I just, again, I held strong. And then when I stepped away, I absolutely howled. I just let it all out. And I, I just couldn't believe that someone could see upon themselves who had gone through the loss of a child. And I remember uh, walking past the Newcastle Knights Rugby Stadium and looking up. And I could hardly see it. My eyes were a blur, but I knew it was the stadium. And I'd have those countless experiences where through people's generosity... Um, and occasions like that, I just would weep. I would just call it peeling onions, and it. But I felt so much better because you couldn't bottle it up, and I just kept thanking God, um, giving thanks for me being so privileged to be where I was. So, and that again, that I took that with me the whole way around. I didn't know when or where next. I might have been bestowed some incredible support um, and if I felt emotional with it, um, I'd have some sessions with some people who are already emotional. But generally on my own, I just would 
wheat. And then on an upside, shall we say, that was never a downside. It was always uh, an upside. It was good therapy for me. And that's what got me through. But the other upside was it was quite, quite funny. I was camped on the side of the road um, between, we're now between um, Perth and Albany on the leg, on the Great Southern Highway, down um, well and truly 11 months into the walk and have already had a great time in Perth, great fundraisers and everything was going so well. This was a camping occasion on the side of the road, literally got a photograph, literally the road's five metres away, pouring with rain, got the tent set up, same night as it happened to be that Australia were playing in the World Cup qualifier over in Sydney, I had my little transistor radio crackling away when I heard John Aloisi stick the ball in the back of the net in the penalty shootout and I've absolutely roared my head off with joy and then just to realise, well, hang on, I'm just by myself in this tent and went quiet and all I could hear was the, the rain pitter-patting on the tent. So that was a funny occasion, but I was on my own. You told me about uh, occasions when you were camping out too, that the stars, how good the oh, sky looks. Yeah. Um, just talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, I used to challenge myself, particularly in the remote areas. Uh, and when the weather was northern Queensland, it was a little bit cold at night. It was June, July when I w- walked through there. By the time I'd gone through into northern West Australia, it was late August, September, it was starting to warm up. So I could literally have the fly off the tent but still be in the main tent and looking through the mesh. And I would challenge myself and look at the the big moon, the full moon and the stars and see how long I could stay awake for. And without fail, next thing I would remember would be waking up, not, not remembering when I fell asleep. But when I would um, be set up and before I actually retired into the tent, I'd be sitting on my, on my stool, I would have tucked into a can of baked beans or spaghetti, depending on what I had the night before. And I would just sit there in awe. The only noise would be perhaps occasional road train, truck or traveller on the road. But generally when they travelled through, and if it's late at night, I'd walk into the night if I felt good and it was cooler and under a full moon, I could get some good kilometres under the belt. So it could be 10 or 11 o'clock at night with my headlamp lamp on and I'd just pull into the scrub find a good clearing, could tell there was no signs of snakes, there's no movements, it was pretty good landing, so I'd just put the gear down and just sit in awe and just watch how bright those skies were. I was able to become a bit of an astronomer. I was able to pick the Southern Cross, I love to follow that and the pointer and yeah, just those little things you just become to look forward to um, come the end of the day. Uh, once I had the tent set up and I was fed, I used baby wipes to keep the wipe off all the grime and the sunscreen and dive into the tent and just, as mentioned, just gaze out the tent, seeing how much, how long it took before I fell asleep. But it, clearly it never took long because all I then would always remember then is just waking up. Can you explain me just the last bit of finishing uh, coming back into Adelaide after? How many, do you have to tell me the actual stats? How many days? Yeah, the walk uh, was 379 days is what it took. And the actual distance exactly was 15,430 kilometres. And coming into Adelaide was a bit surreal. I, again, part of my preparation, I've had it referred that I was quite calm. In fact, 
too calm, too relaxed. And it was actually deliberate. It was by design. I prepared, as mentioned, for a good 12 months for the war. And my actual preparation, which was serious, was to literally prepare myself life away from home to life on the road. And again, I had no fallback other than illness or family matters. Unfortunately, there were no issues while I was away. But plan B was always, if my health was at risk for reasons unknown, mental and physical, that was it. The, that was number one priority and the walk would either get put on hold or it would get abandoned. Fortunately, didn't happen other than things, you know, blisters and that and all those different events during the walk, but they certainly weren't basis to stop. And the same thing, Rick, with me approaching Adelaide. Now, when I say approaching Adelaide, I'm talking pretty much from the time I crossed the South Australian border from Western Australia this is serious. I actually meditated on this. Yeah. So my whole preparation was, as mentioned, I meditated being on the walk. I travelled around Australia by road. So just quickly, when I was preparing for a walk at home in bed, we're talking six months before I'd taken the first official step, I actually dreamt. I meditated being in my temp, tent on the side of the highway between Halls Creek and Fitzroy Crossing in the stinking hot weather. And that particular day, I'd have to say, I'd only just walked, uh, may have worked 20 kilometres in 8 degrees temperature and it was freezing cold. And I remember falling asleep, thinking and dreaming that's what I was. When I woke up, of course, I was back in my bed at home. On the walk, when I actually got on that section of road, not the exact same spot, I was never going to know, but literally on my tent, I meditated back to my home in training in the middle of winter in the Adelaide Hills, I fell asleep, it was stinking hot, getting close to at least where I was, and I dreamt back and I remember waking up being, not alarmed, but feeling amazed that, oh, that's right, I'm actually on the walk. And I was able to correlate the two, and I did that deliberately. So when I returned, and I'm saying returned to South Australia, this isn't the end of the walk, it's... Early December, I still had a month of walking to actually finish the walk. But when I crossed the border into South Australia, I literally started meditating and preparing myself of life back off the road and life back home. Didn't really know what had in store at home. I didn't have a job. I had to go and get one. But I was consciously starting to prepare myself mentally. So when I actually did take that final step, it wasn't a massive letdown, what do I do now? I was really starting to focus on getting myself prepared to all the familiar things that would be familiar to me at home, what my routine would be. I was a very organised person mentally and physically for that reason, and I can I can happily say it was great. I, I was as happy for when the walk finished for that day because it actually become that one day because my preparation was a build-up of 378 days prior. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, from, from there, what's next? I think <laughs> you've told me about some planning you're on, you're thinking about doing next. What's your next adventure? Uh, well, life is an adventure. The number one priority is Di uh, and I have our own business, and that is uh, a big focus. That's an adventure in itself. But on a personal level, I've always wanted to do Kokoda, 
the Kokoda Trail uh, certainly significant in wartime history and certainly with Australian wartime history. Our good friend Mark Gibbons and I, we've had discussions. Mark is quite keen to come on board. It's been on my bucket list and if it, all the planets align, Rick, if it happens to be, that would be my next adventure. Certainly as a fundraiser, I would um, get uh, myself focused and prepared to do that. But time is the essence for me and with our own business, it does take up a lot of time to to stay with, uh, with the business and keep focused. But I'm hoping maybe over the next 12 to 18 months that might be an opportunity. And, and in talking with Mark, we think it's quite significant that Wilson gets to come along. And of course, anyone who's done Kokoda or anything like it will know that you just don't take prams on any trek, particularly um, when you go through the tropics. So we're going to do a bit of thinking. I think the wheels have come off, but we might somehow get a lightweight chariot built up. How we're going to carry him through the rivers, we don't know, but we'll just see. And um, the last question that everyone gets on the podcast is what makes you happy? Ah, what makes me happy? Actually helping others. I'd have to say I do like connecting with people and seeing other people happy. See what I do for them and in their lives makes a difference. I think that's why I enjoyed, I just focused on the walk so much. And it was just to know and see that what you did made a difference. And same with the business now. We set it up, we're service orientated. I just love it when I know we've got happy customers. We've done a good job. And I just look forward to the next opportunity to meet someone new or just make a strong connection with someone and know that whatever it is you've talked about and whatever it is you've shared has made them happy and that the same with my family. Uh, that makes them happy. So if I can be doing something that makes people happy in life, then that's what makes me happy. Thank you, Colin. If you enjoyed today's broadcast, can you please subscribe and we'll catch up with you next week.